Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today we are going to be doing a case study on the Rhodes Roundtable and the Society of the Elect. So this is the introduction to our series on corruption and conspiracy in government money and education. And it will all begin with this case study on a specific society that was set up in the past by Cecil Rhodes. And we'll go over what that was, what the goals were, who was involved, and what forms it takes in today's world. We will start by going through a cast of characters with a little history and storytelling there. And then we'll go into some firsthand accounts with some quotes from Cecil Rhodes himself from some letters and from his will and testament, as well as a good bit from Carol Quigley, who basically wrote the history of this society. So to set the stage, we'll begin with the Rothschilds. So where did the Rothschilds come from? Where did their money come from, their power, their influence? More than likely, you've heard the name Rothschild, but maybe you don't know where that came from. Well, to begin with, the first Rothschild started a bank, pretty much. He started lending money to other people and became known as a reputable banker in town. Now, what happened was that he began to start loaning to governments, specifically to fund wars, such as the German mercenaries that were hired for the Revolutionary War War on the side of England. He was involved in that. And other wars and other world powers, you had the Duke of Wellington, Portugal, Spain, Prussia. He was involved in supplying all these governments with money and with loans and investing some of their money. And the name Rothschild was the name of the bank itself or the company itself. It wasn't the man's name to begin with, but he ended up adopting the name, and that's where the name Rothschild comes from. And so with this, he gained a lot of influence and a lot of money, and he was very successful, especially right off the bat, and that upped his reputation. And with this, he ended up building a very large network of agents and shipping partners, couriers, and he used very innovative and complex financing solutions, at least for his time. And that was how he differentiated himself, and the Rothschilds differentiated themselves from their competitors. Now, the London branch was started and ran by Nathan Rothschild, and at this time, you had multiple branches around the world, throughout Europe mainly. I believe there were three to five branches, depending on the time period you're looking at, in this early time period of the House of Rothschild. And... To look at Nathan, who ran the London branch, this was very interesting. He funded the Napoleon War on the side of the British government, and he made a huge fortune after the Battle of Waterloo. And so what happened, and this was brilliant how he did this, but what happened is that since he had built up such a good network of couriers and of spreading information and agents and that kind of stuff. When the Battle of Waterloo happened, the British actually won. Now, nobody expected them to win. Napoleon expected to win. And most historians nowadays, looking back at that battle, say Napoleon and the French should have won that battle. They had the better soldiers and a better position and everything else. But they actually didn't. The British ended up winning. Now, what happened was that Rothschild back in London heard about this victory before anybody else. And it was well before anybody else because he had such an efficient communications network. So what he did is he went down to the exchange in London and started selling off all of his shares, his stock. And that was English Consul was the name of it. And it basically represented government bonds in a sense. It was for the Bank of England and the British government in general. And so what happened is when he started selling these stocks, the other people there at the exchange and other people in the markets 
assumed that he knew that the British lost the Battle of Waterloo, and he may have spread some disinformation about this. That's not verified, but I have seen multiple people that said that he actively said that the British lost. But we do know that he sold all of his shares, and as he was doing this, people caught on and other people started selling their shares. And then there was a basically a market crash in these stocks because everybody was worried that the British lost, the French were coming, and basically, why would you hold this worthless stock? And so what happened is that when the price crashed, it got all the way down to five cents on the dollar. And at that point in time, Rothschild turned around and started buying up every bit of stock he could get his hands on, used all of his money, and bought everything he could at this rate of basically five cents on the dollar. Now, what happened was shortly after that, the news came out of a victory that, hey, actually the British won the war and the Battle of Waterloo did not turn out the way they worried. And so as soon as this happened, the price skyrocketed back up. Not only did it get back to its original level, it actually went even higher than it was beforehand because people were, you know, excited and legitimately so that the British won the war and that was looking good for the country. And so it would be good to own stock. And so what happened was that Nathan Rothschild ended up making the equivalent of probably billions of dollars. No one knows for sure exactly how much it was, but he had a small fortune behind him, or actually a large fortune at the time, and used every bit of it to buy up all this stock. And then the price went up, I don't even know how much that is, from basically five cents to over a dollar relatively, And uh, that's quite ridiculous amount of money that he made. But not only did he make this unworldly fortune off of this event, but the stock that he owned gave him ownership of the Bank of England, in a sense. He owned the majority of the stock for the Bank of England, and so he basically controlled the money supply. There are a few quotes attributed to him, but I can't find a reference to exactly where they come from or proof that they actually came from him, but they're basically to the extent of, I care not what puppet is placed upon the throne of England to rule the empire on which the sun never sets. The man who controls the British money supply controls the British empire, and I control the British money supply. And so, again, I can't find for sure that he said those exact words, but the philosophy and the idea behind it is very true. At this point in time, he did control the money supply of the British in general through his funding and banking efforts through the government, number one, and through the ownership of this English console stock, number two. And in his mind, and the goal was to have control behind the scenes of the empire without actually having to basically be on the throne of the empire, which was impossible. And so that was kind of the beginning of the rise of the Houth of Rothschild. Now, the French were not very happy with the Rothschilds, and they completely avoided them after the Waterloo incident and around that time period. And so you had Kalman and Jacob Rothschild, which were two of the Rothschild sons there, they quietly bought up immense quantities of French government bonds. And as they were gaining the supply, they were still trying to get in with the French government because that's what they did. They would set up a branch in a foreign country in the main capital city usually, get involved with the government there, start financing armies, wars, things like that, and financing government programs and projects in general. Well, they couldn't do this with the French because the French wanted nothing to do with them. So what they did is they bought up all these government bonds over time, quietly, And then in 1818, they basically sold all of them across most of the main European exchanges all at the same time and totally crashed the price, basically to show the power that they held over the markets. And that apparently was enough to let the French know that they probably didn't want to mess with the Rothschilds, probably wasn't the best idea, and, you know, what's the worst that can happen? They're a banker. So... Shortly after this, we see that the Rothschilds became the number one bankers for the French court. 
Rothschild money is behind many popular names over the years and over this time period from then till now. Um, They set up J.P. Morgan and financed J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan was known as basically the Rothschild Bank in America, and they did establish a banking empire in America through the Morgans and through a few other interests. The Rothschilds also funded Cecil Rhodes, and they funded his development of the British South Africa Company, and Cecil Rhodes pretty much ran South Africa for a long time. The Rothschilds were involved with administering the estate of Cecil Rhodes, and we also see that they were the largest shareholders in the De Beers Diamond Company, which was from Cecil Rhodes and financed by them. So you see their hands in a lot of things behind the scenes, often owning controlling shares and controlling interests in specific areas, always related to banking and always related to money, and typically related to governments or government endeavors. And particularly, they specialize in war. So that's the background for the Rothschilds, very briefly, very roughly. Going to the next person is Cecil Rhodes. Now, Cecil Rhodes, like I said, pretty much ran South Africa for a while. He was central to the Boer War, was the one that pretty much initiated that and ran things during that time and after that. And he solidified his control after that war was wrapped up. Now, he also owned the majority of the gold and diamond production coming out of South Africa and some of the surrounding areas. He founded Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and Zambia. He started the Society of the Elect, which is the group we're talking about today. And his last will and testament gave all of his fortune to fund a few causes. Number one, this society. And number two was the Rhodes Scholarship Program. And so that's where all of his fortune from the gold mines, the diamond mines, the De Beers Company, all these different things. He had lots of money, extremely wealthy, and that's where he dictated that it would all go when he died. And sure enough, he did die, and sure enough, that money did get sent on down the road. Now, I do want to read a few quotes here because I'm going to try to do a lot from kind of more official sources rather than me just telling you stuff. So I want to read a portion from Cecil Rhodes himself, and it goes like this. I contend that we are the finest race in the world and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. Just fancy those parts that are at present inhabited by the most despicable specimens of human beings. What an alteration there would be if they were brought under Anglo-Saxon influence. Look again at the extra employment a new country added to our dominion gives. I contend that every acre added to our territory means in the future birth to some more of the English race who otherwise would not be brought into existence. Added to this, the absorption of the greater portion of the world under our rule simply means the end of all wars. At this moment, had we not lost America, I believe we could have stopped the Russian-Turkish war by merely refusing money and supplies. Having these ideas, what scheme could we think of to forward this object? I look into history and I read the story of the Jesuits. I see what they were able to do in a bad cause, and I might say under bad leaders. At the present day, I become a member of the Masonic Order. I see the wealth and power that they they possess and the influence they hold. And I think over their ceremonies, and I wonder that a large body of men can devote themselves to what at times appear the most ridiculous and absurd rites without an object and without an end. The idea gleaming and dancing before one's eyes like a will-o'-the-wisp at last frames itself into a plan. Why should we not form a secret society with but one object, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule, for the recovery of the United States, for the making of the Anglo-Saxon race, but one empire? What a dream, but yet it is probable it is possible. And that was Cecil Rhodes talking about basically his ideas here, that the Anglo-Saxon race was superior to everyone else, 
that the British Empire should control the whole world and take over the whole uncivilized world, that we should reunite with the United States and have this Anglo-Saxon empire. And it would be best and makes a lot of sense to form a secret society with this goal and to further this plan. I want to read another section that is also from Cecil Rhodes in a letter to W.T. Stead. And this is about his other ideas and basically the same idea. The key of my idea discussed with you is a society copied from the Jesuits as to organization, rising levels of secrecy as in Freemasonry, an idea which ultimately leads to the cessation of all wars and one language throughout the world. The only thing feasible to carry this idea out is a secret one, a secret society gradually absorbing the wealth of the world to be devoted to such an object. He later says, The society of the elect should inspire and even own portions of the press, for the press rules the mind of the people. The society should always be searching for members who might, by their position in the world, by their energies or character, forward the object. So that should give you an idea of what Cecil Rhodes was thinking, what his goals were, what his mentality was. And this society, sure enough, was funded and it was started. And some of the original members were Cecil Rhodes himself before he died. There was, of course, a Rothschild on the board there. There was Sir Harry Johnston, who was a colonial administrator at the time. You had William Stead, and he was one of the most influential journalists at the time. There was Reginald Barrett, who is also known as Lord Escher, and he was the Queen's counsel and a judge and had a lot of influence in the British government. You had Alfred Milner, who was known as Lord Milner. He was a statesman and focused on foreign policy. And you had other people that are named. But basically, you get the idea that it's these very highly influential people in government and media and banking that control the interests behind the scenes and have the most influence on those in power. And through that, they hold a lot of the power. Now, the idea was that this society would be called the Society of the Elect, and you would have the society of the elect as the group of people that basically ran things, but it was based on the Jesuits and the Illuminati and the way that they structured their secret societies where you had rings within rings within rings. And so the society of the elect would run everything. They were kind of like the board of directors in a sense that were the ones in charge. But then you had what they called the association of helpers and that had both an outer circle and an inner circle. And so you had the one circle of association of the helpers, and they would be in charge of a lot of different things. And they would think that they're probably the top notch and they were over the next level down association of helpers. And basically no one really knew who was actually in charge. And so that's how they wanted to structure it is in a decentralized way where everybody knew what the goals were. Everybody had a mission to accomplish, but you didn't necessarily know who it was that was pulling all the strings or what the structure of the system was. It was kind of secret. It was rings within rings, like I said. And the further down you go, the more of a helper status you are. And the further up you go, the more in command you are. And so this was all set up under what they called roundtable groups. And so you would have these roundtable groups that would be established in different countries around the world. And what they would do is basically discuss strategy and plans. The goal was to make each roundtable group very influential to the government that they were involved with. So if it was a roundtable group in France, then they would want to be influential with the French government. Ideally, most of the members were also part of the media, journalists. You'd have people that were in government and politicians. You may have people that were in banking. Basically, the idea of what I had said before about the founding members, it was that same mentality. And so this roundtable group would then try to gain influence in the French court 
and through that be able to kind of control things behind the scenes. And that was the goal, no matter where they were, of these roundtable groups. So the goal was mainly to infiltrate government, finance, and media. That, those were the main things. And they generally followed a Fabian strategy. And not only this, many of them actually were Fabians as well. And we've mentioned the Fabians before. I'll mention them again later. But this Fabian strategy, at least, is the idea that you work slowly and you work behind the scenes, that you gain influence and you magnify that slowly over time. And it's the whole idea of putting a frog in boiling water versus putting them in cold water and slowly raising the temperature. As long as you slowly raise the temperature, it never knows that it's getting boiled. And that's the idea, that you have this roundtable group, they start gaining influence, they're made up of very influential people that are then getting these specific ideas that they have discussed in their group, and they get these out there through the media, through government circles, through the banks and corporations, and through this, they just slowly start to gain more and more influence. Hopefully, their members are the ones that end up being in the government and involved in these banks and on the boards of directors and running media corporations and things like this. And so that's the idea. Again, the overall goal for the society was to bring the world under British rule and to have a collectivist society or a socialist society under British rule and one world government. Now, this did shift later, a few years later after Cecil Rhodes died, it shifted to more of a socialist world government in general with global power influences. And this was not necessarily the British Empire idea, but more of just the idea of the global government that is a collectivist government and runs the whole world and everything under its control. And that ended up being the goal later on. You had influences that they worked through, and these were things like the foundations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, you had the Morgans that were involved, you had these power centers that they would try to establish within countries and within governments, and so you have things like the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission You've got the Bilderberg meetings that happen every year, super secret. You've got the Royal Institute of International Affairs in Britain. You've got lots of different things like this where they would set up these power centers. You would have these roundtable groups. You'd gain influence. And all of this was to further their one goal of having the one world collectivist government. And that was basically the elite that would rule everything. And so... I want to move on to the next person, and that is Edward Mendel House. Now, he was a diplomat, politician, advisor. He was known by some as a kingmaker, and he was the one that basically got Woodrow Wilson elected, and he ran his campaign. Now, before Wilson got into power and started making policies, Edward Mendel House wrote a book, and he wrote it under... An anonymous name, but later came out that it was he that wrote the book. And the idea of this book was that there was this man, Philip Drew, and the book was called Philip Drew Administrator. And Philip Drew was kind of a normal man, but he ended up, through a series of events, gaining control of America and instituted basically a technocratic, authoritarian, progressive dictatorship. And he ran the country. And with this, he had some specific goals that he implemented to make this good for society, to improve society. And some of these goals were things like this. You had an income tax that he initiated. Now, at the time, there was no such thing as an income tax in America. He instituted high levels of regulation, and the government got involved specifically on the boards of the corporation. So they had direct involvement in how corporations were to, to operate. He instituted universal health care around the whole country. He set up a central bank, which also was not a thing at the time. We didn't have the Federal Reserve. He instituted the ownership of all communication and transportation under government control. 
which we do have things like the FCC and organizations like that nowadays. Uh, he also set up a League of Nations, is what he described it as, and it was just as you would think, a League of Nations. And sure enough, Edward Mendel House was the advisor to Woodrow Wilson and kind of steered Woodrow Wilson towards certain policies and certain ideas. Now, Wilson also, before becoming president, had some similar goals and similar ideas. He liked the idea of a one-world government. He liked the idea of having a central bank. He actually agreed, before getting elected, that if they would help him get elected, that he would be okay with doing an income tax, doing a central bank, and he was on board with the League of Nations. Now, sure enough, after World War I happens and we get into World War I, which is also controversial, Woodrow Wilson played a major role in making sure the Lusitania went where it went and, yeah, it got blown up and changed public support, and then we ended up getting into the war. Americans were not big on getting into that war to begin with before the Lusitania got attacked and blown up. And so through a series of events, World War I happens, World War I ends, you have the peace talks going on, and sure enough, Woodrow Wilson officially proposes the idea of a League of Nations, and it gains a lot of traction, he's the main proponent of it, and most of all the world powers sign on. The problem, though, is that in America, you have to get congressional approval for something like that, and so that didn't happen. And America would not approve giving up any sovereignty to any kind of world power. And so he didn't get that through. And so although he did get the League of Nations started, America was not on board with that. Now, after this big loss, Edward Mendel House met up with some other big bankers in Paris. And that's where the peace talks were being held was in Paris. And so as those wrapped up, he met with a bunch of the other bankers of course, including Rothschild interests, their name pops up everywhere, and they came to the conclusion that they needed to do something, and they had to find a way to influence America to enter a world government, that obviously America was not ready for that, they did not want that, they weren't going to have it, but, you know, that's their overall goal, they want a one world government, so how do we make this happen? Well, what they decided is that they had to influence things behind the scenes and influence foreign policy. And shortly after that, and that idea, came out the Council on Foreign Relations. And that is the history of the Council on Foreign Relations. It was started as a roundtable group through this society to influence the country towards a one-world government was the goal. And we will get into the Council on Foreign Relations in a later episode. That's very interesting. But that's kind of where I'll end there on the Edward Mendel House deal. The next person is Carol Quigley. And he is one of the most important people in this subject because he is the one that actually wrote the history of this society. So he wrote a book entitled Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. And then he wrote one called Anglo-American establishment. And he was a historian at Georgetown. He was by no means a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. He was an official historian, well-respected, and he is actually mentioned multiple times by Bill Clinton when he was running for president and became president. And Bill Clinton mentioned Carol Quigley as a mentor to him and as a professor that had a huge influence on him in school. Now, sure enough, Bill Clinton was also a Rhodes Scholar and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So, yeah, you got that too. And so, Carol Quigley is someone who had firsthand knowledge of how this society operated. He became entangled with this society. He actually agreed with most of its goals. And the one thing he didn't agree with was the fact that they wanted to stay secret. In his opinion, they had had so much influence in the world and in historical events over the modern history that he felt like that should be told to the world, that people should know this, especially those in academia and those in power, kind of the elite should know about this elite society. And so he wrote these books to basically present that to the world and release the history of this organization. Now, after the first release of Tragedy and Hope, the 
plates were destroyed by the publishing company. So the first round of books went out, and then no more went out. And they told Quigley that there just wasn't any demand. Well, the problem was that there was actually a lot of demand. When people started reading this, they wanted more, and they wanted more copies, but there weren't any. And it turned out he had to go through a lawsuit, and it was this big ordeal, and it turned out the publisher finally admitted that they actually destroyed the plates to the book. And that's why it was out of print. And so later on, finally, there was a bootleg copy that started getting printed and got out into the market. And then when that happened, they actually did release a new version of Tragedy and Hope and reprinted it and got it back. And so now that is actually in circulation. And that is basically the history of how that happened. Now, what I would like to do is focus on Carol Quigley and what he wrote, because he would be a first-hand account of the history of this group. And you'll see as I read, or hear as I read, that he was connected and how he was connected and all this kind of stuff. So I've organized a few sections of his book, mainly from Tragedy and Hope, and I'm going to just go ahead and read all the way through this. There's a lot of reading here, so stick with me. It should be very interesting, and you should get a very good feel for what this society is, how they work, what their influence is, that kind of stuff. I tried to pull out the best sections that kind of cover this broad idea without having to just tell you a summary or just do a few little sentence quotes. So I'm going to read all these in a row. So listen up. There does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the roundtable groups, has no aversion to cooperating with the communists or any other groups and frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have, for much of my life, been close to it and to many of its instruments. I have objected, both in the past and recently, to a few of its policies, but in general my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown— and I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. One wintry afternoon in February 1891, three men were engaged in earnest conversation in London. From that conversation were to flow consequences of the greatest importance to the British Empire and to the world as a whole. For these men were organizing a secret society that was, for more than 50 years, to be one of the most important forces in the form formulation and execution of British imperial and foreign policy. The three men who were thus engaged were already well known in England. The leader was Cecil Rhodes, fabulously wealthy empire builder and the most important person in South Africa. The second was William T. Stead, the famous and probably also the most sensational journalist of the day. The third was Reginald Baileol Brett, later known as Lord Escher, friend and confidant of Queen Victoria, and later to be the most influential advisor of King Edward VII and King George V. The details of this important conversation will be examined later. At present, we need only to point out that the three drew up a plan of organization for their secret society and a list of original members. The plan for organization provided for an inner circle to be known as the Society of the Elect and an outer circle to be known as the Association of Helpers. Within the Society of the Elect, the real power was to be exercised by the leader and a junta of three. The leader was to be Rhodes, and the junta was to be Stead, Brett, and Alfred Milner. In accordance with this decision, Milner was added to the society by Stead shortly after the meeting we have described. The goals which Rhodes and Milner sought and the methods by which they hoped to achieve them were so similar by 1902 that the two are almost indistinguishable. Both sought to unite the world, and above all, the English-speaking world, in a federal structure around Britain. 
both felt that this goal could be best achieved by a secret band of men united to one another by devotion to the common cause and by personal loyalty to one another. Both felt that this band should pursue its goals by secret political and economic influence behind the scenes and by the control of journalistic, educational, and propaganda agencies. This organization has been able to conceal its existence quite successfully, and many of its most influential members, satisfied to possess the reality rather than the appearance of power, are unknown even to the close students of British history. This is the more surprising when we learn that one of the chief methods by which this group works has been through propaganda. It plotted the Jameson Raid of 1895, it caused the Boer War of 1899-1902, to it set up and controls the Rhodes Trust, it created the Union of South Africa in 1906-1910, to it established the South African periodical The State in 1908, it founded the British Empire periodical The Roundtable in 1910, and this remains the mouthpiece of the group. It has been the most powerful single influence in all souls, Balliol, and new colleges at Oxford for more than a generation. It has controlled the Times for more than 50 years, with the exception of the three years 1919 to 1922. It publicized the idea of, and the name, British Commonwealth of Nations in the period 1908 to 1918. It was the chief influence in Lloyd George's war administration in 1917 through 1919 and dominated the British delegation to the Peace Conference of 1919. It had a great deal to do with the formation and management of the League of Nations and of the systems of mandates. It founded the Royal Institute of International Affairs in 1919 and still controls it. It was one of the chief influences on British policy toward Ireland, Palestine, India in the period of 1917 to 1945. It was a very important influence on the policy of appeasement of Germany during the years 1920 to 1940, and it controlled and still controls, to a very considerable extent, the sources and writings of the history of British imperial and foreign policy since the Boer War. The powers of financial capitalism had a far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent meetings and conferences. At the end of the war of 1914, it became clear that the organization of this system had to be greatly extended. The task was entrusted to Lionel Curtis, who established, in England and each dominion, a front organization to the existing local roundtable group. This front organization, called the Royal Institute of International Affairs, had its nucleus in each area the existing submerged roundtable group. In New York, it was known as the Council on Foreign Relations and was a front for J.P. Morgan and Company. In fact, the original plans for the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations were drawn up at Paris. By 1915, roundtable groups existed in seven countries, including England, the United States, since 1925. There have been substantial contributions from wealthy individuals and from foundations and firms associated with the International Banking Fraternity, especially organizations associated with J.P. Morgan, the Rockefeller, and Whitney families. So that wraps up everything that I am quoting from Carol Quigley, and that should give you a really good idea of what's going on here. You had this society that was set up by Cecil Rhodes and some of his compatriots. They wanted a one-world government, and they proceeded to do so. They had a huge influence in the media and in the local governments, had a big influence on multiple wars in the banking community, and lots of money behind it, lots of influential people, the Morgans, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, all these different people and these huge groups like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and groups that have extreme influence in the local governments of the area. 
the goal of the Rhodes Scholarship was to pick out the best and the brightest and the people in society all around the world that had the most potential, put them through a specific education program, and use that as a recruiting grounds for roundtable groups for the society. And that was the original goal for the Rhodes Scholarship Foundation. And so this is what happened. Now, where are we today? Well, we still do have most of these groups. They still do exist. They still do have a lot of influence. The Rockefeller Foundation is still in existence. The Morgan interests are still going strong. And so we see that many of the players and many of the fortunes and the money trail continues. It continues to exist and it continues to influence. And this was all started by Cecil Rhodes through Rothschild funding and through this society and this goal of a one world socialist government, basically. And that's what they're still going for today. So there are actually people behind the scenes. There are elite groups of people that want to control and steer society and whole nations. And it's almost like the world is their chessboard and they're trying to move these pieces around. And the very interesting thing is that this is not conspiracy theory. This is just straight up history. These people existed they did have these goals and these desires, and they did set up these different groups. These groups really do have the influence that Quigley states and that many other people have talked about. And we'll get into more of this in the next few episodes as we get into the specific corruption in different areas. We'll talk about the Rothschild Foundation and the Carnegies. We'll talk about the Council on Foreign Relation in depth, about the Trilateral Commission, the CIA. There's so many different areas to get into here. We've got the Federal Reserve, which we've already talked about quite a few times, and you should have a good idea of that. We'll talk about the Fabians. But all these have a lot of influence. And the point, the overall point, is not that there is this society that runs the world. Watch out. That's, that's not the deal. The point is that there really are elite people around the world with wealth, with power, with influence, who do consolidate together in order to steer society, to steer countries. This does exist. It's not a spy novel. It's not a conspiracy theory. This is something that has happened historically. If you look at history, history is full of conspiracies. History is pretty much nothing but conspiracy after conspiracy, lies and treachery and deceit and people being double agents and flipping on people and just this is what happens. Nations that are fighting against nations and then stab another nation in the back and all this stuff happens. This is history. And so we just need to be aware that this stuff actually exists, but not only aware in the sense of, I guess, how a lot of the alt-right media sees it where, oh no, it's the new world order, but they don't actually know who's involved. They don't know what the history is. They don't know what the documents are. And that's what I want to focus on. So especially as we get into the next few episodes, I am going to be doing more reading than talking or maybe an equal amount because I do understand that this stuff sounds a little crazy, that it sounds a little extreme, it sounds a little bit like a conspiracy theory, and yeah, in a way, it is. It is a conspiracy. But I'm trying to do more conspiracy history than conspiracy theory. So I am trying to be very well-researched in all this stuff, and I have been criticized in the past for not backing up things that I say. Well, unfortunately, that is the hazard of doing a podcast of this format. I don't have the ability to stop after every sentence and tell you exactly where I got the information from. Ideally, I would have all this stuff in show notes and have 20 links per episode and all the quotes listed out and all that stuff, and... Maybe one day I'll get to that. I would love to. Right now, I honestly just don't have time. I still have to work full-time and have a family and side jobs and all kinds of stuff I do, and maybe eventually I'll be able to do that, so I can't. But I do try to have the references at the website. You can go to the website and see the different books that I've read, the different resources that I look at, the different podcasts I've listened to, and you can get an idea of where I get my information because that is where I get my information from. And I do try to research 
everything here, especially things like this. So you have things like the books Tragedy of Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment. You've got the history books that talk about the different wars like World War One and the role of Edward Mendel Howes and just lots of different things like that. As I get into the next few episodes, what I'm going to try to focus on is quotes from presidents, uh, different speeches by congressmen and senators and government reports and that kind of stuff. So we have some more firsthand accounts from people that you should be able to at least know that it's legitimate that what they're saying is true. And you might not know for a fact that exactly what they're saying is true, but it's coming from a very reputable source and coming from so many reputable sources that that should give the impression and should be able to convince you that this is not just some crazy theory, that it actually is what goes on behind the scenes. And I think most people would agree if you ask them, do you think that there are wealthy and influential people behind the scenes that kind of pull strings? Well, yes, most of us would probably think that that is true. That's not very surprising. That's not really that big of a deal. We just assume that, you know, corporations have a lot of power and different interest groups and people with millions and billions of dollars probably do have some say in how governments decide on policy and regulations and things like that. And you have the fact that most of the big media corporations are all owned by just a small handful of companies and under that umbrella. And so it's just, it's not too much, not too much of a stretch to think that there is corruption and conspiracy behind the scenes. But for some reason, as we really start to dig into that and see what that corruption is and what that conspiracy is, then people start dropping off like flies. And they're very averse to the idea of figuring out what these conspiracies are. And yeah, that's interesting. As a side note, the term conspiracy theory actually came from a CIA operation in the 60s, I believe, 60s or 70s. And what their goal was, was to start labeling people that were anti-establishment and that were basically calling out the corruption in government. And they wanted to label these people as crazy and untrustworthy and basically wanted society to discount them. And so they had a whole operation to normalize the term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist and associate it in society with people that are just crazy and don't make any sense and don't know what they're talking about and that kind of stuff. And this was released declassified years later as a an official CIA operation. And so you kind of see that, again, there's things that go on behind the scenes that steer society and how they are to think and how they are to operate. And that's just reality. That's the world we live in. So hopefully this is at least interesting to you and you can learn something And you should be able to start pulling things out of current events and out of the news when you start to hear. If you hear the term Council on Foreign Relations, that should pique your interest. You should listen up to that. If you have two candidates running for president, one was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and one wasn't, who do you think is going to probably win? Well, probably the former. And we see, yeah, anyway, I won't go there. We will get into the Council on Foreign Relations. It's a big deal and all these things. But a lot of this can stem from this society, the Society of the Elect, founded by Cecil Rhodes. That is kind of the beginning of a lot of the modern, shall we say, conspiracies, modern corruption that goes on. And if not this society directly, the ideas behind this society, the fact that They believe that certain elite should be the ones that rule the world because they're the ones that are intelligent. They're the ones that have the power and wealth and influence. And, you know, really, once you get all that money, once you have all that wealth and influence, then what else is it? You can't buy anything else that you want. You have everything that you could ever want or need. So what else is there? Well, you make an impact on the world and you gain power. Those are the things that people seek once they have reached the pinnacle of wealth because there's nothing else there. They've already got it all. So that's generally what happens. And these are the players that are involved. So that's all we'll do. I'll wrap that up here. We are going to do episodes later on 
all these conspiracies and this corruption and the different players involved and that should be very interesting in the upcoming episodes. I hope you enjoyed it. Please let me know if you have any issues or any questions or any recommendations or anything at all. Feel free to send an email. It's in the show notes. Also, visit the Patreon page if you want to support us and what I'm doing here. And if you want to get more information on the things that I talk about and the things I mention, like I said, go to the website, click under resources, and I've got a list of the different resources that I use and that I have used for history. It's not 100% complete. So if there is something that you want to know about specifically, then just send me an email and ask. And I'll tell you, I personally have records of all this stuff, but it's just way too much time and effort to go in and input all that and format it. And there's just a lot to do there. Again, hopefully eventually I'll be able to get around to that, but I have not. So if you have something specific that you want to know, where's my evidence that such and such happened? Or where did I get my information on the history of the Rothschild family or whatever the case may be, I can send you that information if you are curious about it. And hopefully you are curious about a lot of the things we talk about and you do your own independent research. That's the goal. The goal is for this to be a launching pad that you can get the basics and you can get the rough idea of what's gone on and what is going on so that you are interested and it piques your curiosity in these different areas and you can go pursue them on your own and learn more about them and go more in depth in these different areas. That's that's the goal. That's what I hope that people do. And that's what I try to do myself as I learn about this different stuff. I'll go down all the different rabbit holes of all this information. Like I didn't know most of this information probably three years ago. This is fairly new to me, but I've done a lot of research into it because my interest was piqued. And so I looked into one thing, that led to another, that led to another, and eventually we get to where we are today, where, yeah, there's just so much that it's an entire season's worth of a podcast. And so, yeah, I'll go ahead and stop here. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your support. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast and subscribe and all that good stuff. Thank you very much for doing that. It is greatly appreciated, and I love hearing from people. Remember that if you are interested in participating in getting a free t-shirt, the chances are fairly good. The numbers of people that have done this is very low. So you have a good chance of getting a free t-shirt with the R Foundation's logo on it. And look at the website or look at the Patreon page to figure out how to do that. It's pretty simple. It's not very complicated. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Bye.